Our first reading is from the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 13 to 22. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The word of the Lord. Our second reading is from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The word of the Lord. Job, the story of Job. 
The story of Job is the story of tragedy and suffering at its greatest. We just had it read, but here's the, the basic summary of it again. In one day, Job loses everything. A band of raiders, two separate bands of raiders, come and in their sinfulness and evil, they come and kill and destroy and steal. Storms come, lightning, windstorm, or derecho, killing his flocks and even his children. In one day, he loses everything. He goes to abject poverty and to the death of all of his kids, their spouses, and the assumption there is all of his extended family, gone. This is natural disaster. It is also human and spiritual evil. It is tragedy and suffering at its greatest. And what's Job's response? We get Job's response in verses 20 through 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Job sounds ridiculous to me. How do you respond that way to the death of your kids, to losing everything you had? How do you respond this way? I think most of us could respond more naturally with this question. How can a good God allow suffering? Or more personally, the way some of us do, I can't believe in a God who would allow this sort of suffering. That's the question we're looking at today as we continue on in this series, Questioning Christianity, looking at the challenging questions that culture has for Christians, and in particular, over the next few weeks, we're unfolding the questions that people who are doubters and skeptics, who don't believe in God, what do they have that they hold up against God? And one of the things that's most common is that God allows suffering. There's so much suffering and evil in this world. And you know what? This is a very valid reason to be skeptical of God. It is hard. It is hard to reconcile suffering, the evil that we see or experience, and a good, all-powerful God. Anybody who says that's easy is not doing justice to the nature of suffering in this world. And often, as I've found, this is the most personal, the most personal objection to faith in God. It's not purely philosophical. It comes down to deep-rooted experiences of pain and suffering. And if you have suffered, if you have lost somebody in your life close to you, if you have dealt with sickness and tragedy, you know that it is hard to reconcile the suffering of this world with a good, all-powerful God. And one of the main reasons why is because we don't understand why. We want to ask God, why is this happening? Why does this happen? We want to know what good, towards what end. Because if we have a purpose behind suffering, we can be okay with it. Like, if you go through basic training in the military, it's suffering. But it's towards a good end. You're being prepared for war. We look at the sacrifice, the death of those men who stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, and while it is a tragedy, their loss, their death, we see it serving a greater good, pushing back an even greater evil. 
parenting is suffering. Those are parents who are laughing, kids. It really is. And if you've never thought about that, it is incredibly great suffering to be a parent. From the birthing of the child to the sleepless nights that follow, to raising them with great hopes for them and wrestling the anxiety and stress and worry about them, it is years and years and years of suffering. But as parents, it is for a greater good. We see that. Kids, we actually think it is a greater good. It is worth it. You're bringing humans into this world and setting them off. This is a good thing, and the suffering is worth it. But there seems to be a lot of suffering with no purpose. A tsunami that wipes out thousands. A suicide bomber that obliterates dozens. An earthquake in Nepal that, that smashes people's lives to bits. A theater shooter who goes in and wrecks and wreaks havoc. Extreme poverty. People starving to death even today. Cancer. It is senseless, and we, we sense that it is evil. And so we conclude, either God is not strong enough, he is not all-powerful, or else he'd stop this, or he's not good. He can't actually be trusted. Or there can't be a God. There is no God because this sort of suffering and evil exists. And there is no good reason behind it that I can see. And that's usually what it amounts to is we can't see the reason, therefore God cannot exist. Tim Keller in the book The Reason for God that we're reading along with this series for the second half of the summer summarized this conclusion, summarized a response this way. He said, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Now, this is a philosophical, not a very pastoral response, but we have to ask ourselves if this is one of our reactions. Is it possible that there's a good that we might never see or that is beyond our comprehension? A crass example is that of the toddler and his mom when it's time for a nap. The mom says it's time for a nap. The toddler screams and has a fit. It sounds like the worst sort of suffering and oppression. She is forcing me into my bed while I am playing. The mom has a greater good in mind, his well-being and hers. But to the toddler, he can't imagine a good that comes out of this nap time. And the question is this, is the God that we're talking about our equal or our omni? Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, all everything. The great God, or is he our equal? If he is our equal, then we should expect answers. If he is omni, then it's quite possible that we won't understand everything. I think when we are most indignant about suffering, most angry about the evil we see in the world, it actually points to faith in God. Assuming, let's say assuming there is no God, okay? Let's assume that there is no God. 
how can we know that something is evil? If there's no God, how is it that we determine that a particular type of suffering is morally wrong or bad? Somebody might say, well, I just know. I know that poor people starving to death is not good. Well, how do you know? Well, I guess I just, I, my feelings. That's really what it's being based on, is your feelings. But to borrow from apologist Ravi Zacharias, some people feel like, feel like loving their neighbors. Some people feel like eating them. Feelings are not a very firm ground to build a moral theology. You might say, well, maybe society, we collectively come to these truths of what is wrong and what is good, that people should not be dying of these things, that, that gunmen should be stopped. It is morally wrong and reprehensible. Society comes to these conclusions. But of course, society, as the concluder of what's right and good, is a slippery slope, isn't it? Ask an African-American in Jim Crow South whether society's conclusions on good and wrong are always right. Obviously, ask the Jew in 1930s and 40s Germany whether society collectively comes to the truth of what suffering is evil. Ask the unborn since 1973 if society's rules and determinations on what is suffering that's evil is really evil. Society is not a good ground for building a moral framework. Actually, if you want to have intellectual integrity, you have to go where Nietzsche went. If there is no God, then you have to conclude what Nietzsche did. There is no ground for moral indignation at anything. Life is meaningless. Therefore, so is suffering and death. So you can't call somebody suffering evil. It's no different than a leaf falling from a tree when somebody dies. Think about it. We might be upset and cringe when we see a gazelle eaten by a lion, but it's not moral outrage. We don't say the lion was evil for eating the gazelle. It's nature, not gazellicide, right? If you don't think there is a God, you actually have no grounds for moral anger. The death of a tree, the death of your child, it's nature. If there is no God, no absolute truth, then what grounds do we have for saying any suffering is wrong? Vince Vitale, who is a philosopher and theologian in Oxford, in an interview said this, the person who objects to God because of evil can only make his objection by already assuming the God he's trying to disprove. Because only God provides a stable moral reality that allows us to call good good and evil evil. I think our very anger and grief when we see or experience suffering and think that it is evil suggests there must be moral truth and that there is a God. I know I can't convince you if you are a doubter or skeptic, 
But I will say this, the problem of suffering and evil is not a uniquely Christian problem. It is a human problem. Atheists have to deal with it. Christians have to deal with it. All the world religions have to deal with it. The problem of suffering and evil and having a faith in God is also a very, very personal thing. And if you have dealt with sickness, pain, tragedy, loss, you know that it is a very personal thing. And I think the real question we should be asking is, whose answers satisfy? When it comes to dealing with suffering and evil, whose answers satisfy? And whose enable us to face suffering? You know, in the book of Job, we actually see three common responses to suffering and evil. We see the atheist, the religious, and the faithful. The atheist response is actually Job's wife. She's a peach. She says to Job, Job, after all that you've dealt with, curse God and die. Basically, there is no God. Life is meaningless. It'd be better if you were dead, so go ahead. Think about what it's like to face death especially the death of a loved one, if you have no confidence in God or eternity. You have one of two options if you're going to have intellectual integrity. Either you've got to be stoic and detached. My son died. The tree out back died. But that betrays the heartache and grief of loss. That's not satisfying. You can also do another thing in that, in that same atheistic response. You can be sunk by hopelessness because there is death and life has no meaning. So you can either be detached or hopeless. Curse God and die. Job's friends were not much better than Job's wife. They give the religious response. Now, look, Job's friends start coming alongside of him, and for a few days, they're good. They're there with him. But then they start giving the religious response. Okay, Job, we've been with you for a couple of weeks and you're suffering, but what did you do? What sin did you do to cause God to do this to you? The religious response is always, you must have done something and God is getting you back. This is the view of Islam. It's the view of Buddhism and the idea of karma. I've heard people, Christians, and not use that phrase karma. Oh, it's karma. Things that go around come around. The reality is you don't want karma. Because when cancer strikes, when your spouse dies, the only thing left is to turn to your own self and say, what did I do wrong? Somebody must have sinned, this man or his parents. It's even how errant Christianity has responded to tragedies. Errant Christianity blames 9-11 and Katrina on moral failures of people in our culture. That is not a Christian response. Job gives the faithful response. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can Job say this, we asked earlier? 
He has a worldview that is grounded in a faith in God, faith in God as the omni-other, the creator and redeemer of all things. And this enables him to face suffering with faith in God. Let's look at how that plays out in a Christian worldview, in a Christian understanding of the suffering that we deal with in this world. The Christian views suffering as an evil. There is evil, suffering is evil. But suffering and evil are not outside of God's rule, his reign and control. So the starting point of this is the world is not as it should be. The Christian view is the world is not as it should be. Creation is broken and sinful. You see, in Eden, God gave us freedom to choose him or reject him. And in rejecting him, humanity mars creation and introduces sin and suffering. It is a broken and fallen world we live in. But in spite of this sin and suffering and brokenness in this world, suffering and evil are not outside of God's purposes because God is able to sovereignly use all things. We get this in a couple of passages very clearly. You know the story of Joseph. Joseph, if you don't know the story, it goes like this. Joseph is the favored son of his dad. The brothers hate him. They beat him up, sell him into slavery. He goes into slavery to a foreign land where he's falsely accused, is sent to prison, and is rotting to death. Eventually, he gains power in Egypt and brings about the life of many people. His brothers come back and they recognize that he is in power. He's in a powerful place. He's a prince in Egypt. And his brothers are afraid. And Joseph's response in Genesis 50 is this. Don't be afraid of me. Am I in the place of God? He says then in verse 20 of Genesis 50, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Think about that phrase. You meant evil. God meant it for good. My brothers, you did a sinful, evil thing, and I suffered for it. God meant that same thing. For a good that I could not see while I was enduring it. But it brought about the saving of many lives, even your own lives, my brothers. God uses even sinful choices of human beings. We see this most clearly in the cross. At Pentecost, Peter is up preaching in front of the crowds, And he's talking about Jesus, and he says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God is aware Christ is going to die on the cross, but then there's blame. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Lawless means sinful men. It was a sinful and evil choice by Judas and Pilate and the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders to betray and falsely accuse and crucify Jesus. He was innocent. They were wrong but it was God's purpose all along. Romans 8.28 says, all things, all things, bring, are brought about to good. God brings all things to his good ends for those who love him. Meaning for those whose trust is in him and know that they will have eternity. You may not see the good in your life. God is in control. He will bring about a good. And that's because we believe in God, the Redeemer. The God who restores and resurrects, who works all things towards his perfect ends 
This is the hope of eternity that Christians have in the face of suffering and evil and death in this world. That God even uses broken creation and human sinful choices to bring about redemption and salvation. This is intellectually confounding. I actually can't get my head around how this works. But I also find it incredibly comforting to enable us to face suffering. I think the Christian answer is satisfying intellectually to the world I see. It holds together intellectually as a whole piece. But even more than that, I think the Christian answer enables us to endure suffering, which we all must do or are doing. One of the things I love about the Christian approach is it allows emotions and questions. The Psalms are great if you're going through suffering because here's what you find, like Psalm 22 or 70 or 82 or 83, you hear the psalmist cry out in distress, where are you, God? Where are you? Look what's happening in my life. Where are you? Or they shout in anger, how long, O Lord? How long am I going to have to endure this? They even demand justice of God. Don't keep silent any longer, God. They have this shouts, this anger, this grief. And yet, the psalmists are clinging to the promises and nature of God. We see this actually summed up in what Job does before his declaration. Job hears all these things about the death and loss that's all around him, and it says, Job rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. Tearing the robe and shaving the head is an act of grief. It is extreme grief and anguish in that ancient culture. So he grieves and he worships. He grieves and he worships. This approach to God and to suffering is actually very rare. You know, if you are an atheist, you can be angry at suffering and evil in the world, but you cannot be comforted or hopeful. It's all meaningless. Why are you getting so upset? If you're religious, if you follow another religion, or if you approach Christianity in a karmic view, you better be careful not to express your anger at God because worse things might happen. You better keep your mouth shut. But if you're a Christian, you can be angry. Be angry and trust. Grieve and worship. And that's part of our nature of recognizing there must be justice. God needs to right all wrongs. These things are not as they are meant to be. So we of all people in our emotions should be pouring out in grief at the world's suffering and should be giving our lives to reversing the injustices we see in this world because they are not as it's meant to be. We should be grieving and fighting for the least and the broken, those in need of healing, those in need of food, those in need of care. You can be angry. You can grieve and worship. To me, this is a satisfying pathway for facing our own suffering. I also find that one of the ways that Christianity provides a way to endure suffering is because it gives us this hope. God is found in the midst of our suffering. We see this in Paul, in 2 Corinthians, which we had read. 
The story is this. Paul has some sort of affliction, some thorn in the flesh, he calls it. We don't know what it is, whether it is metaphoric or literal. He's dealing with a physical ailment. He's dealing with oppression by others, spiritual, psychological. We don't know what he's dealing with. We do know this. He pleads with the Lord three times, Lord, take this from me. It does not leave him. And the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul buys into it. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content Content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardship, with persecution and calamities, with all sorts of suffering. I'm content. Why? Because when I am most weak, then I am most strong in the Lord. The money line is God's line. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Here's what Paul recognizes when he is most weak, which is when he's dealing with suffering and evil in this world. When he is most weak, he's most likely to recognize he's not in control. And so he must rely on the grace of God. And the promise is this, Christ's power is perfected in your weakness. That word perfected is the Greek word, or it comes from the Greek root telos, which means goal or finish line, like finish line in a race. It also means when something is complete, like I completed the paper and turned it in. Telos. It's the end. It's the end for which something is made. It's when it reaches its maximum and completion. Christ's power reaches its maximum and its goal line when you and I are most weak. Not when you and I are being our best. Not when we're attending church the most. I even have to remember that it is the power of Christ is not at its fullness when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I think, you know, hey, I'm a preacher, and so if people are really being moved, that's the power of God moving out through me, right? Or you start a church, which we did, or another ministry or mission, or you're doing great things. That's when the power of Christ is being affected through you. This says nothing about successes or holiness or even being healed as the primary demonstration of God's power. It's rather in your weakness, at least in this instance. It's in Paul's pain and weakness. It must mean that the power of Christ is something other than victory and overcoming. And I think we get a hint in this passage that the power of Christ at its fullness is God being revealed and experienced. It's when we know and experience God fully. The second half of this passage of verse 9 says, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the power of Christ may rest upon me. When I am weak, the power of Christ rests upon me. To rest upon is actually to build a house or to pitch your tent. Christ builds his abode in me when I am most weak. In other words, you experience Christ fully, more fully. And Paul concludes, any thorn or weakness or hardship or calamity is worth it if it means he can know and experience Christ more. Because of his sufferings, Paul has experienced Christ fully. This is a very different goal than many of us have in life, but Paul says it's worth it when you get there. 
to experience and know Christ and the fullness of his power is worth every weakness. I am not there yet. I think one of the most encouraging ways that Christianity gives us the ability to face suffering is because God not only allows us to be angry, God not only promises to use our suffering, to be present in it, but God has also suffered too. You know, we live in a Genesis 3 world after the fall, not a Genesis 1 and 2 perfect Eden world. This world is broken and tragic and filled with sin and evil and suffering, and many of you know this very well. The story of Christianity is that God enters this violent world fully in the person of Jesus Christ. That at Christmas, God enters our brokenness. And on the cross, God endures the depths of our brokenness. Betrayal, injustice, evil, suffering, pain, death, hell. He experiences suffering to the full. Tim Keller in the book Reason for God sums it up this way. When we look at the cross, we can know what suffering is not. It can't be that God doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. In other words, it's not just that God aches for us when we suffer. It's that God aches with us because he has felt pain and betrayal and injustice and violence and death. And this assures us that we are never alone. And one of the things you will learn if you've gone through suffering, and if you talk to psychologists, sociologists, people who deal with people in suffering, one of the greatest needs is to not feel like you're alone. And that's part of the call of Christians, is to suffer with our brothers and sisters, with our family members when they're going through a hard time. It's to walk with them in it, to be Christ for them and with them but it's also the hope of Christianity even apart from other people. God is with us. And the God who is with us not only is able to use all suffering in some way, but he has experienced it himself. If you come in here with doubts and skepticism about Christianity, and if this is one of the issues that you've held up and said, I can't really believe in this God, I probably can't convince you in this one little moment today. But I will ask you this, do these Christian answers satisfy? Compare them to your own worldview. Do these answers enable you to face suffering? I haven't even mentioned eternity, the resurrection, the hope that comes from the fact that Jesus resurrected has nail holes and scars Meaning that in some way, in some way, even our greatest suffering is redeemed and restored and resurrected and becomes the source of our greatest joy and glory. It's not just done away with in eternity, it's redeemed. The greater the sufferer, the greater the joy, I don't know. There's an in, a direction that way. Look, let's bring this to an end. 
This world is broken. It is sin-filled. It is evil. There is suffering and pain. All of us need a theology of suffering. The hope of Christianity is one day God will wipe away every tear and all of our aches. He will redeem our greatest suffering. For now, for now, we grieve and worship. And in our greatest weakness, we can experience the telos of God, his fullness. Let's pray. God, for those in here, for those of us in here who are grieving most, suffering most, enduring sickness and pain and loss and tragedy and loneliness and hurt and poverty and struggle, give us grace. Reveal your power in our weakness. And in the midst of a suffering world, may we grieve and worship well the God who is in control, whose name we pray, amen. As our song of response, um, I'd like to share a song that I wrote a few months ago uh, dealing exactly with this, and um, uh, it's taking some of the language uh, from the Psalms, but uh, it's interacting with that tension of uh, how we grieve and also rejoice or we worship while we deal with all the suffering um, and sorrow around us, how we have this hope that things will be set right, things will be renewed, um, that after that sadness has kind of unraveled, um, there's just joy and joy itself. So we'll sing this together. Listen um, and, and read the words as we uh, sing the song.
Sure. 